So I've chosen um, a reading for today from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Now, before I start, you might say, Deuteronomy, that great long book of laws, all 34 chapters of it out there in the Old Testament. Um, It probably isn't exactly your go-to book in the Bible. And um, hasn't James just been uh, giving a series of sermons on Galatians, telling us that all those old laws are irrelevant, that that, uh, Jesus has made them redundant? Well, let's be clear about this. What um, the letter to the Galatians says and what James has been emphasizing, and I'm sure he'll be the first to agree with it, um, is that what Paul says in Galatians is that some of the laws in the Old Testament have been um, made unnecessary by Jesus. So some of the laws relating to food taboos or some of the rites of passage, for example, uh, don't apply to us. However, there are still huge swathes of Deuteronomy that are really relevant Um, It has a great deal about social justice, about neighbourliness, about caring for people in need, about the aliens in our land, about caring for land and animals, and about the cancellation of debt. And if we ever get a speaker from um, Tear Fund or Christian Aid, they almost invariably uh, read from Deuteronomy. So there are, although it seems a very ancient legalistic book. There are actually great swathes of it that are really relevant to us today. Uh, So I want to read a fairly short extract, verse 1 and verses 9 to 15 from chapter 11. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws and his commands, so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give to them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for, The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So may God add his blessing to his holy word. Well, we're um, in that season of year when the minister and his family go on holiday, and so we've got three weeks of sort of one-off topics. Um, And uh, my one-off topic that I'd like to talk about this morning Um, is church and the environment Um, to spend a little time thinking uh, about uh, how Christians should respond to uh, the current environmental situation and um, its implications for the church. Um, 
I could say, eco-congregation or eco-church. And um, I must say at the outset that when I talk about this, I'm aware that I'm using, if you like, a standard scientific model about earth history and about humans on the earth. Some of you may believe in a short earth history and believe literally that the earth was created in six days and so on. I absolutely respect that position. I understand it rather well. Um, but I would tend to um, say personally that some of the early accounts in Genesis are perhaps more poetic than literal. Uh, I believe in a creator God. I believe there is a creative God who is constantly creating. And I'm happy to talk about the earth and the universe as creation uh, rather than as um, accident. Um, but I, in doing so, I will sort of uh, make the assumption that we're talking about an earth and a universe which is thousands of millions of years old and that people have been on the earth for um, hundreds of thousands of years. And if you do believe in a short earth theory, then uh, my apologies, I do, I do respect that. Um, why, why talk about the environment? Um, two reasons. One is that uh, a little while ago, I can't say exactly, it was pre-COVID and it's all a blur, but at one session meeting, um, Deirdre Murray asked the question, um, why are we uh, using so much plastic? Um, why aren't we recycling? Um, what are we doing about it? So we thought that we should address that. And I recall a little working group of, of us getting together and I produced a short paper for session which we discussed and we thought should we become an eco-congregation uh, like one or two other places nearby. Um, we decided at the end of the day not at this stage to become formally become an eco-congregation. There are um, downsides to it, some people might say. For example, it obliges you to have at least one sermon a year on the environment, and after this morning you may decide one is enough. Um, it also involves you in a lot of form filling, and we do an awful lot of that already, and we, it, we felt it was maybe just proving what we already did and not taking us further forward. However, we did decide to um, reduce our use of uh, plastics, to use more um, environmentally friendly materials, and as you will have noticed, uh, purchase recycling bins. So we made a little step forward. But I think many of us felt that it was a topic at some time that we should revisit. And now it seemed an opportunity. The other reason is that I'm sure you can't have missed everything on the television and in the newspapers about the environment at the moment. You're very probably aware that something called COP26 is coming to Glasgow in November. Uh, conference of parties um, on, on climate change um, and that is a very very big event um, I can forewarn you that in just over a week's time there will be uh, a report from the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and I'm sure that that will get headlines in the news uh, so it is, it is very timely for us to reflect on this um, Probably you've heard about COP26, and you may even be somewhat critical of it. You may think that it will just be a big talking shop, that 
thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of delegates will jet here from all around the world and they'll talk away and not achieve anything. After all, there must have been 25 other conferences of parties and what have they achieved? Well, they have achieved a little, but, but not enough. So I can understand it if you were somewhat critical about this. However, at the outset, let me say that things can happen at these big conferences. Um, in the 70s and 80s, for example, we were very concerned about um, aerosols and the damage that these were causing on something called the ozone layer, which is um, a layer of um, an oxygen-like gas way up in the higher atmosphere, which protects us from a lot of the sun's harmful radi radiation. And it appeared that our aerosol propellants were damaging this layer. And so there was a big United Nations conference in Montreal, I think it was 1987. And a lot of people were quite cynical about it and said they're just going to talk away and not agree anything. And so they, they met together and they agreed. They, they pretty much sorted it in one conference. They didn't sort it overnight, but they set in train a process which is still taking place and the ozone layer is healing. And many people would say that that was actually the most successful ever United, Conf United Nations protocol on anything. So we should, uh, we should have confidence that these things can deliver. So let's, let's trust. Um, is the environment a suitable topic for the pulpit? Uh, that troubles me, and I'd like to just sort of mention that at the outset, because some of you might think, oh, it's just the social gospel. I don't want to go down that route. This church is an evangelical church. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Um, we, we accept the importance of Christians doing good things, but we want to backpedal on the social gospel. Um, you may say that the environment is too political. It's too divisive. It leads to too much argument. You may think it's not spiritually nourishing. So I am aware of that. Um, another slight problem that I have with it is that when churches do go down the green route, as some churches do, you end up getting onto multi-faith platforms or, or even secular platforms. Because if we say that we should be recycling and um, flying fewer miles or whatever, then so should good Hindus or Muslims or atheists. And we all end up sort of believing the same thing. And I, I believe really that Sunday mornings should be about how Christians are different. Uh, we are called to be salt of this earth. And if the earth is in danger now, then it needs a special sort of salt from Christians. And so, I, so I'm a little hesitant um, about... Um, talking about green topics. However, I do suggest it's worth doing once, at least. Uh, it may be new to many people, and I think green theology is something that we should at least be aware of. So I'll give you a little spoiler alert. Just in case you wonder where I'm going at times, I'll tell you now where I'm going to end up. Um, and if you, if you wonder where I'm headed, this is where I'm headed. For me, um, the Christian response isn't about worrying about 
carbon dioxide levels or ocean pollution specifically and that sort of thing. To me, it's about an attitude. And to me, it is summed up in a verse that we just saw in Deuteronomy. I know this is talking about Canaan, but I'm certain it can be applied to our land in this day. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. Now, I find that very, very striking, that verse. We should, this is where I'm headed, we should see the world, the earth, through godly eyes. We should share God's gaze. When we see uh, people chucking plastics in the ocean or belching pollution into the atmosphere, I imagine God's eyes being continually on it from the beginning of the year to the end. I imagine it being a land the Lord cares for, loves, cherishes, thinks is wonderful. How does God feel about that? And I think that's how we should see it. We should see it through God's gaze. And that should condition how we react and act. And I think that will be distinctive to Christians and it will make us the salt that the earth needs. Okay, let me just say a little bit about green theology. And this has been nothing new. It's been going around since at least the 1970s. And the reason it really started, and this may surprise you, uh, is for really rather negative reasons. It became rather fashionable, rather fashionable to blame environmental problems on Christians. Why? Well, so the argument went from the critics. The Bible says that we have dominion over animals, over the earth. And that created in us, and particularly it created in Christian nations like America and France and Germany and so on that were at the head of the Industrial Revolution. They say that it created in us a sense of entitlement, dominion, and to take charge of, to exploit the earth and its resources. And for the critics, that was made even worse by things like Augustinian theology, which emphasized the difference between people and the natural world. Animals don't have souls, so it is said, and we do. And therefore, it emphasized this difference between us and the rest of the world. And critics said it's because of this mindset of the Christian nations driving the early industrial revolution that we have damaged the earth. Um, and that became quite a strong viewpoint. So, rather more positively, Christians had to respond to that criticism. And this is really where green theology came in. And there are two basic sides to it. One, and this is something we've really all, but always believed, and, um, and uh, came to our defense very readily, is the whole idea of creation theology. Creation, the whole idea of creation is a big thing in Christian theology and the importance of it. Um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, for example quote after quote after quote through the Psalms and elsewhere about the importance of creation um, and how we should treasure it as God's gift to us. So creation theology 
set more of a balance to that argument. The other aspect of Christian theology which has been very uh, influential is the idea of stewardship, that God didn't put us in to be exploiters of the earth, but to be stewards of it, to look after it, to take care of creation. Um, Now, there is a horrible legal word, which is actually quite useful here, and it's called usufruct. Now, you may all say, oh, we know that it was was on television yesterday. But anyway, this idea of usufruct. Now, this actually came in quite a long time ago. Um, It was quite influential around the 18th century. It means, in legal terms, if you lend me something, if I have it in trust, I'm obliged to give it back to you in the state in at least as good a condition as you gave it to me. And that idea became very important in green theology. And there are references in the Bible to stewardship. And so it tied in with that. Uh, There was a um, diarist, a famous diarist called John Evelyn, who wrote a a book on uh, woodland, woodland management. And he used this idea of usufruct as referring to woodland management. So if you're felling timber, then you're replenishing the wood and you're putting as much back into it as you take out and leaving it in as, in as least as good a condition for the next generation. Um, you've possibly heard of Patek Philippe watches. They are about the most expensive accessory known to man or woman. Um, and they have an advertising slogan, you never actually own a Patek Philippe, you merely look after it for the next generation. Well, you get the idea. It's very close to this idea of stewardship. So we have green theology for very positive reasons, as well as having to respond to a rather negative assault. So that's a little bit about theology. Um, I'll say a little bit about the environmental crisis and what it involves. Now, one of the disadvantages of everyone wearing masks is that I can't tell when you're glazing over, so I promise to keep the science bit very short. Could you do me another slide? Thanks, Carol. Um, There are basically five aspects to um, why we're all concerned about the environment. The first one is population growth, and in a sense that underlies everything. Um, The Earth is simply being hammered by the fact that it's got 8,000 million people on it. We're just about to hit 8,000 million in the next year or two. Um, Now, when the Industrial Revolution started in the 19th century and went on into the early 20th, there were only about one or 2,000 million people on the Earth. It could take it, the earth could take it. There were only half a dozen really industrialized countries. Um, When I was at primary school, the population of the earth was about 3,000 million. Now it's about 8,000 million, and it's heading probably to 10 to 12,000 million by the end of the century, and there we think it should level off. But that is a huge burden for the earth to bear. Um, We are becoming very urbanized, we are seeing the emergence of mega cities around the earth um, and with all the attendant issues that they can bring. So a second aspect after population, a second aspect which you'll have heard loads of is climate. Uh, are we increasing the temperature? 
Are we melting the ice caps? Are we raising the sea levels? And the theory about that is that because we're burning lots of fossil fuels, okay, so millions of hundreds of millions of years ago, trees, animals um, were sedimented in the earth over the years. They, their carbon in those organisms has converted into coal and oil. When we burn those fossil carbons, they, it releases carbon into the atmosphere, it combines with oxygen, it causes carbon dioxide. That tends to make the earth hotter and that's what we're experiencing, to cut a long story short. And so one thing that we're trying to do at the moment is head towards carbon neutrality. Um, so if we're creating carbon, then maybe we try and offset it by planting more trees which suck up carbon. You may have seen EasyJet's latest uh, advertisement, which is saying offset before you set off. In other words, they've already paid for a certain amount of tree planting included in the ticket of your airfare. A third element um, is nature, sometimes called biodiversity, and there is a great deal of concern about the rate of extinctions at the moment and the loss, perhaps, of some of the free services that nature gives us, uh, like pollination. A fourth problem is waste, the amount of waste that we're creating. Um, we've seen uh, Wherever you go, if you're in a walking group, wherever you walk around the coast, no matter how remote, you always see plastic on the beach. Um, and the levels of waste and pollution are really quite serious. And we can make a difference to that, more of a difference than perhaps we imagine, by choosing our products carefully and, and recycling and so on. And a final aspect, and I think this is really important for churches, is the idea of global justice. In other words, what we might call the third world or developing countries. Now, one of the reasons that we should be so concerned about them is that a lot of them are in the front line. The Maldives, for example, could disappear altogether if the sea levels rise too much. Um, the great city of Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, I never thought much of that as a city when I was at school. It was just another Commonwealth city at, the t at that time, the capital of East Pakistan. It is now one of the world's great megacities with a population four times that of Scotland. And it all sits within about four meters above sea level. And it's hugely vulnerable to rising sea levels. So we should be very concerned about that. Um, another problem is that Britain, the United Kingdom, has has cleaned up its act quite a lot since the 1990s. But one of the reasons we've done that is that we've closed a lot of our heavy industry and a lot of our manufacturing industry, so we simply don't burn as much fossil fuels to generate energy. However, we still need those goods, so we import them from places like China. And then we tell China off for burning fossil fuels in order to manufacture the goods that we want to buy from them. Now that, some people would say, is hypocrisy. And that sort of thing is reflected all around the globe. Um, developing countries quite reasonably say to us, don't you preach to us, you know, you've got your standard of living by exploiting the earth. Don't you tell us not to go down your development path. Uh, we, we want your standard of living as well, and that's quite a reasonable thing for them to say. So we must be very aware of our historical responsibility to help developing countries go down a sustainable development path. That is part of our historical duty. And the good news for us 
is that as a church, if we're supporting organizations like Christian Aid and Tear Fund and our, our, um, our, sister, our sister church um, in... Sorry, just a little um, mind blank here, the, the one in Malawi. Uh, I'll come to it in a moment. Um, Emma Sweeney. Sorry, my mind went. Had a little COVID moment there. Um, so... If we're doing these things, then that's absolutely in line with being an eco-congregation. So we're already doing some very important stuff. Now, if, I would say if all this gets you anxious and depressed and you see all these terrible news reports on the television all the time, I would say don't be anxious. Do be concerned as, a, as an intelligent citizen. But quite a lot of the reports, I would say, are over-egged or over-reported. Don't be don't be anxious about this, um, but, but do take an intelligent concern in it. Um, one of the things I would say is that as Christians, we should support and be open to civilized discussion. There are things to disagree about and to debate, and too much debate at the moment just closes the debate down and says you're only allowed to believe one thing, we'll cancel you if you believe anything else. But I do think Christians are called to let our reasonableness be known to everyone, as it says in Philippians. And there are things to discuss. Um, we hear about climate change deniers. Actually, I don't think there are any climate change deniers. Everyone accepts the climate changes. If it didn't, we'd be under a kilometre of ice. So the climate does change and has actually changed quite rapidly in quite recent uh, timescales, entirely of its own accord, uh, with no input from human industry. And some very good scientists say that actually most of what we're experiencing at the moment can be explained in terms of ordinary climate change. Um, and in this situation, follow, why not just follow the science? Well, it isn't always that easy to do so. We see this with the pandemic. It's very difficult to get two virologists or two epidemiologists to agree about anything about what the virus is doing or how we should respond to it. And it's much the same with the environment because it's all out there. We can't control it in the laboratory. So a lot of what we are doing is concerned with modelling, and those models have their weaknesses. Um, sampling, well, we're told the oceans are warming, but the oceans hold 1.35 billion trillion litres of water. So how can we be really confident about what's going on there? So there are areas to debate. Um, quite a bit of environmental forecasting involves um, educated guesswork. But, of course, as each year goes by, the education gets that bit more, the guesswork gets that bit less. There are debates to be had about the best future direction over wind power or electric cars, for example. What about meat? That would divide us. Some people would say meat is killing the planet. Some people here are from farming families who would take a very different view. We've already heard about the problems with impacts on poor countries, or even on poor people in our own country, if we put up the price of electricity to reduce carbon emissions, it causes fuel poverty. So there are um, very significant areas in which we can have civilized debate. Well, okay, that's enough theory. It's enough about theology and about the environmental issues. But what could we do about it as a church? 
There is, as I mentioned at the outset, something called um, eco-congregation. Um, now, in Scotland and one or two other countries, there's something called eco-congregation. Everywhere else, there's something called eco-church. And eco-church is under the auspices of a, a Christian charity called Arosha, which means the rock. And uh, these two schemes um, provide for an award scheme in which churches collect points and they can go for an eco-congregation or eco-church award. And this was something we'd looked at briefly at session. So basically where you start, if you want to do this, you undertake um, a systematic survey of what your church is doing and it takes you through a long, long audit. I totted it up and I found 101 points in that audit. Um, well, you know, that we do quite a lot of form filling and checking already. But it takes you through areas of worship and teaching. Where, does, where do green issues um, appear in that? It takes you through the management of church buildings. How energy efficient are they? It takes you through the management of church land, if you're fortunate enough to have a church garden. It takes you through areas of community and global engagement. And it takes you through areas of personal lifestyle. So some churches take this very seriously. I went on the internet and had a look at some of them. And I um, took a little example of a church called Summerbridge, which is at the southern end of the Yorkshire Dales. And it's got a gold award under the eco-church scheme. And the reason I chose it is just its sheer ordinariness. Um, it's about the same size as us, a little smaller in fact. Um, it's, part of the, it's a Methodist church, part of the Pateley Bridge circuit, and Pateley Bridge is a town about the size of West Kilbride. And they're in a, uh, an old Victorian building, so it faces many of the issues that, that we face. And what I'm going to do is rattle through in about one minute flat all the different things that they do, and I'm deliberately going to do this at a lick, so you get the impression of all the things that they're doing as a gold award eco-church. Well, they include creation care as a key strategy area for the church. They have special Sundays, seven in a year, dealing with things like climate and creation. Their hymns and songs reflect um, creation. They entered the doxicology songwriting competition. Their prayer diaries include prayer requests from Tear Fund and so on, and they circulated green Christian prayer leaflets on Environment Sunday. They held a prayer vigil for Earth Hour Reflection. They had a Lent course on care for God's creation. They host guest speakers, the Christian Aid Speaker for focused on the effects of climate change in Zambia. Their children's work includes a creation care series, a climate crew, crew holiday club. Children were involved in the recreation of the church garden. They participated in an art trail by having an exhibition and workshops uh, and their church on aspects of creation. They measure their energy use, calculate the carbon footprint of the church buildings and the manse. They introduce energy efficient measures. They carbon offset their current energy use by supporting the planting of native trees in the area. They've moved to 100% green electricity and gas tariffs. They've encouraged congregational lifestyle changes. They use recycled products such as toilet paper and minimize the use of disposable products. They reduce paper use. They've purchased cycle racks. They, they have a recycling area in the church and they've created a church cafe, so a community cafe, so that's open for longer hours. They've greened the church garden to maximize its value to bugs and nesting birds. They've hosted awareness raising events by 
other groups. They participate in monthly litter picks. They organise events to enjoy creation, such as church walks. They support a local car share scheme. They financially support environmental charities and use fair trade products. And they have appointed environmental champions in the church. Phew! Well, you may say, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, we can't do that. Um, you know, if, if we do all that, uh, we really will detract from our mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. We're already trying to do too many things. We're already um, uh, filling in too many forms. Or you may be saying, brilliant. If they can do it, so can we. Um, let's be a, an eco-congregation. Let's go for gold. And if you think that, lobby the Kirk session. It's, it's your session. Give us a kick from time to time. But I'm, to conclude, I'm not going to suggest we take sides. I'm not going to suggest we take sides on electric cars, on whether we should be vegans, whether we should rewild the countryside, or even whether we should become an eco-congregation. I am going to suggest we contemplate that verse um, from Deuteronomy. Because it conditions, if we share God's gaze, it conditions how we react and act. It leads us to a distinctly Christian view on the environment. It will lead us to be salt of this earth. If the have the last slide. Thanks, Karen. We know when it comes to COP26 that um, all eyes will be on Glasgow. I've seen headlines in papers saying that the eyes of the world will be on Glasgow. But we know that the eyes of the Lord our God are continually on this land. And knowing that makes a difference. Amen. <laughs>